Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. My apologies, we had a few gremlins in the system, and uh, we still do, but we're going to do the best we can. Um, for some reason, uh, it's, one of, it's one of those days. It's one of those days, but here we are, and uh, I am very uh, happy that my guest was able to join us. Uh, he goes by the name of, I hope I'm going to say this right, it's DM Gian Greco, is that right? Right, right. If you know that it means John the Greek in Italian, then it makes a lot more sense. Ah, John the Greek. <laughs> um, but the D stands for Dennis. Can I can I refer right. to you as Dennis? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, but I mean, your career is very much a, a based around uh, the DM a bit. As opposed to Dennis. Well, as far as writings from about the uh, mid, about the uh, early 1980s on, yes. Great stuff. And you, you're pretty much a, a, a sort of a military historian slash author slash editor. Uh, yeah, yes, that's uh, uh, 13, uh, 13 some books was at the uh, uh, Army's Command and General Staff College as an editor for uh, Military Review. Uh, which which basically uh, is a uh, publication designed uh, for uh, uh, field grade officers, uh, majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels. Dennis, it is an absolute pleasure then to have you. In that case, you've 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 written a book called Hell to Pay, and that's what we're going to be sort of basing our conversation around. It's essentially about the dropping of the atomic bombs uh, on Japan, and. Um, it's a very interesting story. So, as you, as I told you earlier, I I haven't had the time to read your book, and I'm profoundly sorry for that. But I have read as much as I can around um, everything to do with the book, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I must say it, it's it's a conversation that I never thought I'd have, um, in the sense that I never thought I'd arrive at the point in my life where I would consider that dropping atomic bombs might have been the the better decision but we'll get to that in a second um what i want to ask from you dennis is there's obviously a story and everything about world war ii leads up to somewhere else so before we even get to hiroshima and nagasaki uh how how did the u.s enter the war first and foremost Well, in terms of uh, the U- actual U.S. Ent- uh, entry, of course, is uh, everyone, you know, keeping it simple, everyone knows about the uh, Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor and uh, that, uh, but the, uh, the armament and the preparation for mm. war had really been uh, going on uh, in a serious way for, uh, for a couple of years because it was uh, felt inevitable that uh, we would probably uh, get uh, get pulled into the thing. And, of course, there was a uh, lend-lease for uh, the British, uh, 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 a rapid expansion as fast as it could be made, uh, which was actually quite fast for uh, the Soviet Union and their uh, absolutely enormous needs after uh, the uh, Germans invaded. So as far as uh, industry was concerned, uh, we were up and running. 
and the uh, shipbuilding cam- uh, building campaign that actually started uh, uh, made a good start, mm. e- even going back to the late 1930s. And then, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember quickly, Truman took over from, um, who was it now that, that died? Roosevelt. Roosevelt, there we go, sorry. Just had a, yes. a slight memory lapse, and Truman came in right fe- between fe- between the Yalta and the Potsdam conferences. Right, and he he was left with a very very interesting dilemma. Uh, the The Soviets were were gaining were gaining traction, and the Japanese were not looking like they were going to be letting go at any stage. Right. Uh, can you repeat that again? I'm struggling to hear you on my end. Uh, let me just hang on before we go any further. Let me see. Maybe, maybe I've got a volume setting that I can turn up some more for you, just to make it easier for you. Um, are you able to hear me better now? Well, you know what? I can hear you a little bit better now. All right, let's 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 try that. <laughs> um, you're you're almost normal. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's good. That's good. Let's let's go with that then. I don't know what I did, but I pr- I just pressed a button and it's it's one of those days. So let's just let's just leave it as it is. We won't touch any more buttons. <laughs> Here's the funny thing, Dennis. I'm in Africa. I I'm, I'm the one who should be having more technical problems than than you. <laughs> well, I'm pretty mu- I'm pretty much in the stone age. You know, just it just uh, word word processing is all I do. You know. Um. Well, okay. All right. So what I was asking is basically I, w- I was trying to lead up to how the U.S. got to the point um, where Harry Truman decided uh, started looking at the options of what to do with the Japanese. Um. I- I'm trying. I'm trying to tell. I'm trying to get in a very simplistic terms uh, how to get to that story. Because obviously it's very complex and we can be but, here all week. Right. Well, ba- well basically, uh, planning, uh, war planning goes on uh, out really, uh, for the most part at that, at that time, about two years. And mm. uh, the, uh, the decision had been made between uh, Roosevelt and Churchill r- really right uh, before, uh, right at the very beginning of the war, actually before the mm. war. That uh, that the uh, greater threat, the most immediate threat, was going to be Germany, and theoretically, uh, the U.S. resources, uh, the resources of the British Empire and the United States, would be focused on defeating Germany, and then uh, the the uh, it would be shifted to the war against Japan. Uh, circumstances as they developed. Uh, was that uh, worked out that we ended up having to do uh, a lot more in the Pacific and Mm. put a lot more resources out there actually far earlier than was uh, originally conceived. Uh, But at least that gave, you know, some infrastructure and so forth to what was uh, going on. And uh, by the uh, spring of 1945, we were within uh, range of being able to uh, directly bomb Japan uh, on a uh, consistent 
and a consistent basis from islands that we had taken the previous year. Yeah. Uh, the previous uh, summer, Mariana Islands, because because really it was uh, it was that last year of the war where things really ramped up against uh, Japan and really against Germany uh, as well. Uh, from the standpoint of the United States, because other nations had been obviously involved going back, you know, years and years. Uh, but to move the type of, uh, you know, uh, the, the level of manpower and equipment and infrastructure from the United States to overseas and to get that ready mm. and prepared, you know, it's not the kind of thing you can you know, do on a drop of a hat. And as a practical matter, the, the, uh, the, the full blood, if you want to use that uh, term entry of the United States happened in both theaters simultaneously in uh, really June of uh, 1944 with the uh, invasion of France and in the, in the European theater and uh, the, uh, invasion of the Mariana Islands, where the B-29s would be uh, based out of, uh, in the Pacific Theater. Now, obviously, there'd been fighting in both theaters, mm. you know, leading up, but it was uh, comparatively small fry stuff to that that last year before the uh, German and then Japanese surrenders. In fact, you know, people today... Uh, really have their really have a hard time wrapping their minds around the level of casualties that were being experienced yeah. Uh, yeah. on the US side and this is just the United States army it doesn't include the marines which were doing had some extremely bitter bloody uh, operations uh, the navy which had a whole series of massive uh, battles with the Japanese running from uh, the, the Mariana Islands uh, uh, campaign all the way through literally to the end of the war. It was one very massive uh, naval battle coming about every couple months all the way to the end. And casualties were enormous just on the Army alone, you know, excluding the Navy and the Marines. Uh, it averaged just to uh, really to to uh, the stuff related directly to combat, which would include combat, uh, psychiatric casualties, and so forth. The, the it, uh, for the United States, it averaged sixty five thousand men a, a month. month. Yeah, uh, with the uh, the three uh, worst months pre-invasion of japan being uh let's see november i guess no actually i guess it would be october november uh, december i think you you said in your yeah november december january in uh that ended up being like oh i'm trying to think now. 88,000, i think you said it was uh it was uh it was about sixty-five thousand casualties uh, then around like uh, the low 70s, 72,000, then 88,000. And, you know, you, 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 t you run that by people today and they just can't wrap their minds around it, that you're having, you know, casualties mm. at that scale just every month 
you know, month in, month out. But that's the kind of thing that was going on. And of course, in the Pacific, uh, civilian casualties were absolutely staggering and are also compared to Europe because the United States is very Eurocentric. And of course, uh, Europeans are very Eurocentric mm. for, for obvious reasons. But like ca- casualties that were being experienced in Europe were much more visible. But in the Pacific, you have situations like, oh, the, uh, the firebombing of Tokyo. And you're talking uh, very close to 100,000 uh, uh, 100, casualties on that. Actually, 100,000 dead, if I'm not mistaken. And then you have uh, the fighting in Manila, which went on for the better part of a month. And uh, that was another 100,000 casualties uh, among the civilians. Then you're talking about Okinawa, which, depending mm. on how you uh, crunch the numbers, uh, uh, runs upwards to, say, 120,000 uh, casualties. Now, in here, you're not even talking China, which ended up, uh, which ended the war. And of course, it's a war starting in, say, the mid 1930s in their case. But uh, there, you're depend. Some of the Chinese numbers run upwards to 30 million. So, uh, uh, compiling uh, UN po- UN figures from post-war, they were. Uh, you can come up with approximately war-related, about 400,000 casualties each and every month that the war continued. So, you know, people have a tendency, you know, uh, today to look at at the war almost as if it started in 1945. Uh, But as a practical matter, it had been going on for quite some time. Uh, And 45 was just when it was ramping up most most visibly but that entire arc from say northern china down through indonesia where there was uh, uh, a very considerable amount of starvation as the as the war continued oh famine in the mm-hmm. northern part of vietnam almost a million dead there uh, all of that was basically invisible to people now, of course, it's not invisible to us because yes. <laughs> we're fighting it and we're going to be having to pick up the pieces afterwards. I knew people who were involved in the uh, civil affairs you know, uh, area, sometimes referred to as civil affairs or military government, depending on whether it's in friendly territory or occupied territory. Mm. And they were having to look at how, how do you kind of uh, straighten out all of this afterwards and that was a that was a very big fairly invisible but a very big project uh in itself but what this all means for the pacific is is you're experiencing mass death yeah mass death on a monthly scale both from in the military and even more so in the civilian sphere and so uh you know, if you if you mention to someone uh, in the Philippines, you know the uh, you know Hiroshima, it's like, why are they getting any preference in people's imaginations beyond what we were experiencing? Uh, so uh, so it kind of depends on 
who who's looking at the situation and from 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 what perspective but uh asia at that point was in the most terrible straits and it was going to be going on another another thing very basic to this is that right now we think of the end of the war happening today with the signing on the deck of the battleship missouri yeah. when a lot of this planning was going on it was being looked at as the middle of the war that it was going to be going on uh through 46 and into 1947 so right now we look at it on september 2nd as the end of the war at the time uh, during that whole run-up during the planning and the fighting on okinawa and iwo jima mm. cont- continuing also on luzon uh in the philippines uh several different fronts at that point in china and with the soviets uh with our very active support preparing for the invasion of manchuria as well like all of this stuff was going on day in day out yeah and uh and it was uh just staggering losses basically invis basically invisible losses to people today who when they because they'll be focusing in on single events that are part of this much larger fabric but then and i guess that's the dilemma that you were uh uh uh, as a coming new to it in history yes. running into is that you're suddenly finding out, oh my gosh, there was, there was a lot more going on. Well, definitely. Yeah. I mean, definitely it's never, it's never as simple, I guess, as, as uh, the, your school would, would teach you, you know, they would always teach you from a particular perspective and it would always be the, well, these days it's always the anti-Western um, perspective, but I mean, Dennis, so you've got, you've got Harry Truman sitting now at his desk and he's now been given uh, a couple a couple options here. Talk talk me through that. Well, he you know he's he's often and he kind of played he kind of played this angle himself a, li- a little bit of like you know the aw shucks I'm just the I'm just the country boy kind of thing. Mm. But actually, he was a very sharp guy, and he in fact had been uh, running uh, a uh, an investigative uh, committee for a couple of years into uh, waste uh, and abuse, and that's waste even from the uh, standpoint of like uh, planning. And um, it was it was referred to as the Truman Committee, and it was actually very respected uh, throughout both uh, the Roosevelt administration and uh, and the foes of the Roosevelt administration uh, in government, because he had a very uh, straightforward, uh, you know, he backed Roosevelt. He was he was mm. a Democrat, but as a uh, but as a practical matter, he he was known for his honesty, and he had a broader understanding of many matters, many more matters than is necessarily understood by people. Um, among other things, he took his uh, job, his vice president vice presidential job as the uh, president of the uh, of the senate which required that he leave obviously when he yeah. became vice president he could no longer be heading that committee but he's right there and he's there every day uh in uh, the senate uh on debates on 
oh, while they're nearly doubling draft quotas in the United States, uh, which is one of the things that came about in the spring, is that uh, in preparation for what was believed uh, then believed to be a, a massive number of casualties coming during the final years of the war in the Pacific, just because of the ferocity mm. of that particular enemy, that did not surrender. Um, I suppose in today's, uh, I suppose if someone today had to kind of imagine the mindset, it would be as if, imagine ISIS in control of a relatively modern and highly industrialized nation. And that's 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 where and you're that's where you're kind of getting at when you imagine the Japanese uh, militarists of the period. Yes. And it was it was believed that there would be. And if you uh, and if you used existing operations as a basis of understanding and for uh, planning on further operations, uh, things like Okinawa, Iwo Jima, mass uh, battles that had massive casualties in very compressed areas, uh, in many ways more similar to the fighting of trench warfare of World War One than to these armored assaults, you know, running through the, the plains of France and Germany. Um, they were looking at uh, situations where you would have uh, 100, 120 some thousand casualties per month consequently yeah, uh the draft uh the, the draft quotas uh staggered over about a three-month period but it was it was very close to double and again uh, this is stuff that's very hard for people today to under to yeah. understand and the government was being very uh straightforward about it because they figured that if they were so th this was stuff that you could find uh, in uh, j jointly uh, signed letters by uh, Admiral King and General Marshall on the, f on the front page of the New York Times, uh, it, was, it was believed that you had to be upfront about it, but uh, they had ways of kind of finessing the situation to make it look not quite so bad as it was, but they did not want a lengthy war and uh, they uh, looking at World War One as a, as, mm. a as a precedent, uh, they could not really see a situation where blockade and bombardment, which had been something that the Navy had advocated, kind of returned to on a number of occasions. Mm. They could not see how that was going to wrap up the war in a reasonable amount of time. So even though we're looking at planning that the war may go on into 1947 it was thought that some of the other plans uh, relating again to so-called blockade and bombardment might take it actually about another year to two years out from that and meantime how it, it you know you've got millions of men overseas yeah. you have to have you have to have them doing something so there's going to be what the british would call normal wastage uh it, which is that you're going to have a lot of lives probably more and we're talking in this case just of american uh frittering away over a, a longer period of time and what uh the joint chiefs of staff which included the navy uh as well uh decided we will do the invasion 
because at least if we do that, we can kind of keep control of the timing and actually wrap it up quicker. But, uh, but again, this goes back to the whole point that we were looking at essentially being in the middle of the war. Draft uh, quotas are being doubled. We, uh, even though the war in Europe is, uh, has essentially wrapped up, we're at the beginning stages of moving the new draftees through on a training regime to handle uh, 400,000 men per month. Uh, Truman is watching all of this because yes. all of this within a certain within certain parameters, you know, a, a lot of it had to be kept secret. But but a lot of this did spill out into debate uh, right in front of him. Things like the uh, very serious consideration to drafting women nurses, which ended up getting the kibosh. But like we're looking at drafting women. Uh, the uh, lengthening of training times for 18 years old, 18 year olds, uh, to give them three a full three months of training. Uh, the sure. army, uh, to use a uh, more modern term, really kind of freaked out at that one yeah. because it was going to throw the the uh, the uh, replacement stream into the Pacific into chaos. Or it could have, but because there was a natural pause between Okinawa and the continuing fighting in the Philippines and the uh, opening of uh, Operation uh, Downfall, its yeah, first downfall. invasion uh, operation in the southern part of uh, Japan, since there, were, uh, you know, it was going to work out by accident. It was going to work out uh, having that lengthened training and it was certainly saved some lives that that's for sure now see while all this is going on they're also right in the middle of you're probably familiar with the eighth air force that operated out of uh great britain uh bombing germany and yeah a little bit uh, yeah. you probably have some familiar with the b-17s yes. flying over and assaulting yes. and uh and what was Patton's third army, but they were changing army headquarters on it. Uh, most, there was going to be 20 divisions from the European theater that were getting shifted from Europe, literally across the entire planet over to the Pacific theater. They were basically going to be staging out of the Philippines. So you've got an entire army 20 divisions that is uh, coming out of Europe and going to the Pacific. You have the 8th Air Force, which everybody sees the old movies of the B-17s flying over and bombing Germany. Well, their 8th Air Force is getting retrained in the United States. In fact, my father was part of that, uh, so that they're going to be moving from B-17s to B-29s, and they're going out to the Pacific. So there's this massive movement of an entire air force and an entire army to reinforce what's already fighting in the Pacific. Truman's seeing all of that. Yes. So and having to deal with and so he doesn't exactly hit things as cold as people sometimes think uh, he did. He was very aware of uh, all of this and had to make the best decisions, you know, that he could. Uh, in light of what he knew and and the briefings he was getting from people like uh, 
the uh, Army Secretary Stimson, uh, Forrestal uh, from the, uh, was the Navy Secretary and so forth, and, uh, and their people. So that, does that kind of answer you, give you a better picture of Definitely. what's going on with the, the scene and what's Truman yes. knew? Okay, so now we segue into, into the meat. And that is what led up now to the decision to bomb Japan with quite possibly the biggest, how do I even say this now? Uh, the, the biggest military decision of the 20th century. Can we say that? Well, I know it's frequently uh, char- uh, characterized as that. Uh, Miss Campbell, who you originally contacted yes. uh, on this, he characterizes it a little bit differently. Uh, he he characterizes it as the most controversial decision. Right. But Truman's biggest decision, the decision that uh, he considered the biggest, was whether to invade japan and he referred and he referred it that way to his wife in a personal letter he referred it to uh referred to it that way when uh, speaking with general marshall his biggest decision didn't have to do with the atomic bomb which was basically you know something that was going to get used if it was ready in time that was essentially the 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 mo the the whole uh f- focus and scheme of operations with within uh, the government, uh, his though he viewed it as he viewed the uh, decision to invade rather than do a blockade and bombardment as his biggest decision. Well, let's uh, let's the, quickly uh, let me interrupt you. And let's talk about that quickly. Why yes. why did they not do or, or pursue a blockade of Japan? I guess that's a very oh, basically that's a very big question. It was it was too it was way too open ended. And the Japanese were, uh, it was, there was a, there was a divergence of opinion of, you know, his advisors, but the, uh, the basic, uh, the basic thinking was, is that the Japanese militarists were in firm control. The Japanese militarists had very little consideration for their own population. It's almost like their own population is hostage to Mm. them. Uh, to a very real degree, it was thought that the Japanese could take could take it, that they could, and, and in fact, the the figures that were being uh, bandied about within imperial circles at the time was, uh, and it and it kind of depends. Some people were using a bit of a shorthand, which would imply deaths, but it it may have been that they, that it was more casualties. And because, you, you know, you're dealing with translation issues, but the figure that was being used for Japanese casualties, at, at the very least, uh, was 20 million within imperial circles. Good heavens. I mean, we, again, you're dealing in you're dealing in figures that are so large. How yeah. exactly do you wrap your head you around? Them? No, you can't. I mean, how, I mean, how do you do that? No, that, you know, you have the leadership of a country. They have. Uh, approximately 10 million people overseas and about 90 million on the main islands themselves. And they're looking at 20% casualties to that, stretching out for years to see the Japanese thinking. And we were reading their internal, a lot of their internal communications. 
was that they wanted to stretch the war out. That was their fundamental goal, uh, was to stretch it out. We did not want to stretch it out. Mm. Either way, it was going to go a long time. And blockade and bombardment against a military mindset of that had no consideration for civilian casualties. Yeah, and it was bloodthirsty, that, that particular mindset. Yeah, like their their view of stretching it out really is stretching it out going for many more years the the invasion was something that we could we believe handle on a timetable that we could control and we did and the planning was not to take all of japan or as truman mm. once said create an okinawa from one end of japan to the other but the idea was to take various key areas and you know and just kind of uh, from those key areas, stranglehold it until there was a surrender of some sort or till we basically neutered their entire industrial capacity, essentially sent them back to the Stone Age. See, none of this is, is, is pleasant stuff. People no, have, it's dark. Uh, it's very, very dark. Pe people think of war, you know, now that, now that you're dealing with things like smart munitions mm. and you think of the... Uh, um, Operation Desert Storm, where it was just a very conventional, you know, armored series of armored operations going up into Iraq. People think of these as very much military to military operations, but this was a world war involving entire populations. And the United States did not want it for even, you know, our own purposes. We did not want it stretching out three and four and five years. And an invasion had a more certain timetable than trying to guess when the Japanese would throw in the towel. Because they were a defeated nation, but a defeated nation does not necessarily surrender. Uh, the Nazis were basically yes. defeated. Yeah. by June of 1944, but they did not surrender. And uh, the Japanese, if anything, were even more fanatical than the Nazis. And uh, Dennis, let, let me let me interject now, and you, you need to uh, uh, forgive me because I, I don't have the, the extent of knowledge as you do, so I, I need to catch up a little bit. But my understanding is that the Japanese had a mindset of continued fighting they would fight right to the very yeah, last yes so so they would fight to the end they 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 wouldn't yeah, give they, up they would just keep going just keep going right their basic strategy and i would i would absolutely slaughter the word if i tried to say it and there was a couple of variations but but their strategy for the war was to continue it through uh bloodletting and delay and the bloodletting that they're referring to is, you know, themselves and also designed, uh, aimed at, you know, the uh, the allies, mm. uh, the Chinese, and more specifically, the United States. Bloodletting and delay. So they would just keep going, and that's why they ended up with with suicide bombers and and um, <clears throat> that that sort of mindset of just fight till the last man is that. That's kind of their mindset. So, so surrender. Yeah, wasn't... basically, they figured if they can stretch it out, 
Yes. Uh, they figured that if they could stretch it out, we would eventually just go away. And surrender wasn't an option to them. No, so it was it was it was not an option. Uh, they what they were angling for was an armistice. Like uh and in fact that was one of the reasons why the uh why the the uh Soviets uh when they had the so-called peace overtures uh from the uh from the emperor in uh the uh summer of 1940 uh <clears throat> 45 it's it's characterized by critics of Truman as a peace overture, mm. but it's not a peace overture by any extent. What it was, was uh, the opening of negotiations that would theoretically lead to an armistice at some point in the future. And it was part of the stretch it out, stretch it out, stretch it out uh, campaign. You know, we're reading their mail, so to speak. So, uh, so we know this. The Soviets know it, mm. and so every, everybody knows uh, knows what's going on there is that they're trying to kind of discombobulate stuff, you know, just ahead of the Potsdam conference. But you know, it was not uh, it was not a serious offer. It was very vague. Uh, the Soviets, you know, uh, basically just just kind of threw it off. But what's fascinating is even though it was they were essentially started attempting to start what would be a process for armistice negotiations. It's characterized by critics of Truman as they were trying to surrender. Well, surrender wasn't, wasn't in the cards. Yeah. Like uh, uh, at the time it was like, well, if only we had guaranteed uh, that the emperor could stay on the throne. Well, there were, Honestly, there was in public opinion, you know, Americans pretty pretty much would have been happy if the emperor was just hung. But uh, in the from the standpoint of the U.S. military and the U.S. leadership, we didn't want anything happening to the emperor because he was the only person who could order their armies and their forces from Indonesia to China through throughout uh, and throughout all the holdouts anywhere in Japan, he was the one guy who could actually order a surrender. If the emperor gets killed or if they think he is in jeopardy, uh, mm. you know, that's, uh, or that puts kind of the kibosh on the whole thing that really does stretch it out. Then you'll have, you'll have yes. holdouts working, uh, working their little piece of earth to defend their little piece of earth for decades. So, so now this this uh, massive massive bomb is being developed. Uh, it was largely a secret, as I understand. Uh, Completely. Yeah, and uh, Harry Truman now knows that he's going to try and abruptly. Uh, end the war by forcing Japan into surrender. Have I got it correct? Right. Yes. The uh, when it was found out that the uh, a after the uh, test uh, in the Southwest United States, when it was when it was seen that the bomb actually would work, and the uh, and the test, uh, interestingly enough, uh, was done really after the Potsdam conference had started. And then uh, Truman, you know, informed Stalin about it. 
uh, Churchill knew about it a little bit for uh, Stalin. Um, it was hoped, and there was a lot of optimism that it might stampede the uh, imperial leadership into, and yeah, just it would be just such a it would uh, supply such a shock. That is the word mm. uh, that you will uh, see being used by Marshall, uh, Stimson, and others. Uh, oh, Truman himself, that it would that the that the appearance of the atomic bomb would be such a shock that it would functionally stampede them into a surrender. And uh, the idea was is that since the Japanese also knew about uh, atomic fission and had some interest in it, but had not pursued it in a meaningful way. Um, it was, they would know that it was, it took a staggering effort to actually produce such a weapon. And uh, it one of the things that was anticipated is that if one was, uh, was exploded, it had to be, it had to be uh, exploded in an area where they could see it was just not some pyrotechnic display. Right. Yes, of course. So there was a number of cities that were kept off of the uh, B-29 target list. And, uh, and those were the ones that were slated uh, there was a target set of four cities, and the idea was to uh, really drop drop the bombs, you know, just really as they came available. Like you might see, the, but after the second bomb, and uh, there was uh, there was some communication. It was that uh, was decided. Okay, we can hold off. We can hold off a little bit. So the components to the third uh, were uh, were uh, were held up briefly, uh, and then uh, when the Japanese did not respond after uh, after uh, after a period of time, they were allowed to be sent out to the Pacific. But essentially, the idea was to demonstrate clearly what the bomb was. Yeah, that it was not something. That was just a one-off to kind of trick them into surrendering, but that there, but that we could, that was part of a process. And the thinking from uh, from uh, General Marshall specifically was that if they did not surrender after they were used, as he put it, one, two, three. I don't think he used the number four, but four. There was plans. There was four cities in the target set. If the Japanese had not. Uh, surrendered after the, after the destruction of a number of cities to these, then further bomb production would not be wasted on the cities, which had essentially destroyed most of them anyway, but that they would be held back for use during the invasion. Now, here's where you get into some really very dicey stuff, because at that particular point in time, while it was understood that atomic energy uh, and atomic bombs uh, would pu would put out radiation that you know that was fantastically deadly, a more fuller appreciation of that radiation was not to come for about another year or two. My word! And at that particular point, if the Japanese 
had not surrendered by the time that target set had been, uh, you know, worked through. Um, uh, Nagita, Kokura, Nagasaki. Um, then the further production was going to be held for the invasion of southern Japan. Uh, and that would have been an absolute and total unmitigated disaster yes. for uh, both the Japanese and the U.S. because they were going to be using uh, essentially uh, three bombs per uh, uh, set of invasion beaches. There were three invasion areas, and those three invasion areas were essentially allotted uh, two bombs to the uh, to each of those and a third in areas of direct support to them. So you're talking about nine nuclear blasts uh, in, in a fairly compressed in a fairly compressed area. Uh, That's incredible. Thoroughly radiated ground that would then be uh, having its its radiated dust being stirred up uh, by uh, airfield construction and all the logistic stuff. Clouds of nuclear uh, nuclear radiated clouds flowing out to the uh, uh, in an eastward direction over large uh, hunks of the U.S. fleet. Uh, Japanese civilians obvious, uh, obviously being affected by that in, uh, in um, the s- southern Kyushu and Sokaku. I may be pr- mispronouncing that. You know, the, the, if the Japanese had not surrendered when yeah. they did, I mean, it was... It would have been devastating. It, it, it is such horrifying prospects. It's just amazing. All right, so Dennis, let me just... Let me just uh, uh, um get get you where you're at at the moment in the story okay so japan was relentless in its attacking the u.s and japan didn't have successful negotiations at all um and the u.s government realized that japan's strategy to keep the war going was going to end in vastly higher numbers of casualties and the way to oh yes and so the way to minimize that was to have some high impact um event the word the word used in the highest uh u.s levels was shock them into surrender right okay so so shock them into surrender and so in the background secretly truman knew that um that that these high impact bombs were being developed they were being tested nobody knew about them or very few people knew about them and he he had to do a little bit of a maths a maths game figure out what would lead to the fewest number of casualties it's a catch-22 he's going to end up making a terrible decision one way or the other so he's going to have to and in fact that's in fact you're actually you're actually almost quoting uh secretary of war stimson oh (laughs) Uh, yeah, it was like the which was I think he said something to the effect of that the least worst decision, right? Because right. all because all of them were bad. You had this war that's uh, that is uh, just in terms of Asians is uh, costing something like four hundred thousand Asian lives a month. Most of that quite invisible. Most of it mm. to starvation, exposure. And the Japanese and the Japanese didn't thing. care. Yeah, yeah, that's this. It's it's not a factor. 
you know, mm. it's Asia, you know, it's, it's just not a factor. So you have the you have fantastic numbers of people dying every month uh, all along that entire Asian littoral. The United States is looking at uh, once we uh, we've already been having casualties, enormous casualties defeating the Nazis, and ours were tiny mm. by comparison to the British Empire and especially the Soviet Union and the Chinese. Uh, <clears throat> But now we're looking at uh, the uh, the principal role in the invasion of Japan. Uh, there's going to be a British. Uh, there's going to be a British corps, which, by the way, in one of the Australian divisions, was going to have a South African uh, battalion, and there was going to be other South African elements involved as well. But uh, and that was that was in the early planning stages. That mm. was, you know, who knows how that would fluctuate up and down but uh you know we would be taking the lead role there yeah uh and that was going to be you know w let's put it this way the replacement stream that we were aiming for was a hundred thousand men per month and that's uh, and again yes how do, you, before, how do you how do you how do you wrap your head wow. around you know an okinawa happening an Okinawa times three happening every month. No, that's not. You know. No. Now, now the fascinating thing about this is we're. This is one of the reasons. This is the principal reason why we're working so hard to get the Soviets in. Mm. Now, most of this. Now, this has been really within about the last ten years. Although it was the heavy declassification on this came in 55, 1955, but the, the narrative was pretty much established by that time. But, and uh, our own government for reasons of the cold war and so forth, you know, minimized, uh, you know, what we'd been doing, but we basically bankrolled the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. And the reason for that was, is that, uh, from the United States Army's perspective mm. in planning is that every Japanese division equivalent that they could withdraw from Manchuria would represent on the U.S. side approximately 20,000 U.S. casualties. And it was estimated that even with our uh, dominance and blockade in the uh, East China Sea, the Sea of Japan, for a variety of technical reasons, and this was also discussed military to military at the Potsdam Conference, but nobody really has much interest in the military discussions. They always focus on the easy stuff, the uh, yeah, diplomatic. The, and the politics. And, uh, but, uh, but we basically told the Soviets that, like, you know, we're not going to be able to, like, block off the Sea of Japan uh, until after we're in Kyushu. So we've got to do Kyushu no matter what. Mm. And during that intervening time, it was estimated that even with our best es uh, efforts, the Japanese may still, without a Soviet invasion, be able to get at least five more divisions across into Japan. Five more divisions is a hundred thousand more U.S. casualties. Right, right. And Truman, at in, at the tail end of one cabinet meeting, you know, flat out said, "Got to get the Russians in, or it's going to be a hundred thousand more U.S. casualties." So we we're 
you know, basically bankrolling them coming in in order to essentially either uh, lock Japanese divisions in place or if the Soviets can do it, destroy them. And uh, that's those are a lot of this is covered in the. the two newer chapters in hell to pay in hell to pay yeah but let me just quickly ask you a question before we get to the the bombing itself uh, why japan and why did nobody else consider attacking japan uh, i'm thinking of perhaps of the soviets or any of the other uh nearby countries geographically speaking well of course well it's that's actually a pretty uh simple uh answer the uh the Chinese had no capability to do such a thing. Uh, the uh, the uh, British Empire, in conjunction with the U.S., could assist U.S. Mm. operations, but it was certainly nothing they could do on their on their uh, own. And just and it's just not. And and besides, Churchill's uh, basic interest is in Europe. Mm. In fact, there was a lot of very anguished communications from him uh, about the U.S. withdrawing uh, those divisions out of Europe because he was afraid uh, with no, uh, you know, you can't say he was uh, wrong on this, but we had, you know, commitments to go to the Pacific. And uh, and uh, he was very concerned about uh, our withdrawal of uh, forces from Europe. Yeah, uh, but we were on a very tight timetable. Uh, but uh, you know that's a whole other subject. But, right, right. Uh, let me see if I can get back around to your question. Had to do with why nobody else was doing it. Mm. Okay, uh, the Soviets—they had massive land armies, but they had no worth. They had no uh, amphibious capability and amphibious capability is more than landing ships. It is the whole organization and infrastructure for putting down, uh, a large sustainable force all at once, not piecemeal, because if it's in piecemeal, it could be destroyed piecemeal, but have a self-sustaining invasion force that can be uh, that can t- seize its and hold its lodgment area, expand that area so that more forces come in, and then from that uh, lodgment area, uh, expand outward into the country. Soviets had nothing like that. Now, interestingly enough, because they didn't have uh, anything like that, but they also uh, wanted to uh, secure the Kurile Islands. Right. They also wanted to do uh, amphibious operations, uh, basically, you know, running through uh, the uh, the east coast of Korea. Uh, we had to help them create an amphibious force and the support structure for it. And one of the things that was agreed upon at Yalta uh, was to uh, basically turn over a, a very extensive amount of of uh, naval um, amphibious forces and support forces to them for literal operations uh, that they could conduct on their own. Because we did our the thrust of our operations, and we were very upfront about this at Yalta and reinforced it over at Potsdam, was that we cannot do the Kryal Islands. 
which were uh, essentially could uh, the Japanese from there could block our shipments uh, to Vladivostok, which they needed for the invasion of Manchuria. We are our, our whole, you know, the United States has enormous resources, but they're not infinite. And right. our whole uh, logistic infrastructure is built through the South and Central Pacific. We can't do the Northern Pacific for this. So the Soviets would have to do that themselves and to assist them in being able to do that. Uh, now, this is not Milepost, uh, Project Milepost. The supply to the Soviet Union for the invasion of Manchuria. This is separate, and in support of that is Project Hula, and that's where we set up a uh, secret base uh, at Fort Richardson, Alaska, Cold Bay, <clears throat> and there, I think we trained about it was about twenty-five thousand Soviet sailors on the operation of uh, U.S. large U.S. landing craft uh, and support vessels. We trained 25,000 of them. And this was all mm. in the period between Yalta and Potsdam. And it was uh, going to be expanding further, but of course the war ended. So uh, so that, that whole area was going to have to be something that uh, the Russians were going to have to they were going to have to do that themselves because we didn't. We we had the resources to train them, and we could turn over ships, and we were turning over more aircraft and so forth. Uh, we were reflagging Liberty ships. Do you know what a Liberty ship is? It was those mass-produced, those mass-produced supply ships right. that we were just cranking out uh, practically one a day. We reflagged about 30, some of those U.S. sailors, Soviet flags, and they're, and they're going between because uh, the existing Soviet shipping was not going to be mm. able to handle mm. it. <clears throat> so we essentially uh, reflagged our own ships and they had U.S. crews. They were U.S. made uh, Liberty ships, but they had Soviet flags. This was part of milepost. This other thing of training Soviet sailors who are going the other way through the straits, uh, that was uh, Project Hula. Now, these two projects, because of the advent of the Cold War, never really got, uh, there really wasn't much, uh, well, really, uh, there really wasn't any trumpeting of them. Un unlike, say, Lend-Lease, to say Murmansk, mm, mm. Uh, which was given, you know, a uh, for both morale purposes and uh, and uh, yeah, basically for psychological purposes, was given the maximum amount of uh, visibility. And uh, same thing with going through Iran, uh, you know, uh, the trains festooned with American and mm. Soviet flags, you know, running up through the Caucasus and into the Soviet Union. Uh, unlike those operations, uh, which were uh, centered very specifically against the Nazis, the operations uh, and, and Lend-Lease expansion 
secret Lend-Lease expansion called Milepost was not given uh, any publicity at the di- during that time frame. Mm. And for very good reasons, which was the Soviets were very vulnerable. I don't... It, so at some point, you'll you'll read my two new Soviet chapters, and you'll find them very interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, milepost in Hula, basically because of the advent of the Cold War, uh, there really wasn't any uh, pu- any public release until 1955, and uh, they waited ten years. And by that time, the narrative was already set. You know that the uh, Russians just kind of jumped in. But no, we've been working very hard to get them in. And it was back at the Moscow conference. And I think it was November of 44, where uh, the serious planning and coordination started for that. Um, Dennis, I, I see that we've we've hit our time limit, but can I hold you for a few more minutes? Do you have a few more minutes? Oh, certainly. Because I, I still haven't actually got to the the what you need to the the big moment the big moment that we've been building to (laughs) but (laughs) but the one thing we haven't mentioned yet and and this seems to be a common trope um in sort of popular discourse is that pearl harbor led to this moment oh goodness no goodness no well it may be it may be a common trope and you could see why somebody uh let's say you're you're a student in france Mm. reading about this stuff that was happening, having to do with Pearl Harbor, you know, maybe it's a paragraph or two and it's easy to make that connection. But from the American standpoint, uh, Pearl Harbor, the the American public and uh, America's own uh, selling of the war, so to speak, had the uh, Pearl Harbor being avenged at the Battle of Midway when we sunk the Japanese aircraft carriers en masse that had attacked Pearl Harbor. The, there were, the, uh, the answer to Pearl Harbor was basically within about six months, which was Midway. Now, bet- that time frame between... Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on between when we s- sink the bulk of the Japanese carrier fleet and... Uh, you're getting into now things like uh, the Marianas, mm. uh, the Philippines, Okinawa, Iwo Jima. There's years between those events. You know, like basically, if you go from the surrender of Japan, and while all this massive buildup is is funneling towards an invasion, Pearl Harbor's four years ago. Think where you were four years ago. Yeah, it's- Pearl Harbor. From the standpoint of the American public and from American, you know, uh, uh, it's incidental and selling of the war. That was the Battle of Midway. That was mm. years earlier. Yeah, it's just but incidental. You can see where somebody coming at it, you know, just kind of reading about it incidentally. Oh, mm. Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. X number of years later, you know, we uh, we uh, there's Hiroshima, you know, but it's not it's not at all a one to one connection as far as the American public thought. The, okay. the uh, Pearl Harbor was answered with Midway. So, Dennis, all right. So now we've arrived at D-Day. Truman, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, but he did issue warnings to evacuate Hiroshima. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Hiroshima and all of the major cities uh, because basically it, it was it was to a point where... 
we knew we were going to have to occupy Japan. And it was important that, that it be in the best shape possible under the circumstances. Mm. I mean, their industry was basically destroyed, but for example, uh, the various proposals to say poison food crops and so forth, or even when to do the invasion. No, you can't do it during a certain time frame because that's going dis- to disrupt uh, the uh, such and such crops. So there was actually restrictions on the invasion and subsequent, you know, operations having to do with them being able to continue producing food, and the thing having to do with warning. Uh, residual populations and cities to get the heck out because there was going to be a second wave of attacks on the cities. Did they and believe we also it, warned the cities, pardon? Did they believe it? I don't know. I've never seen a good study on that. We One thing that was uh, a, quite a shocker for the population, which is similar to what you're talking about, because we did have leaflets warning populations to get out which we figured would also lead to further disruption of their industry and communications. So we wanted to get people out of the cities. It saves lives, preserves lives. Plus it also discombobulates what's left of their industry, if you can do it. But the Japanese certainly knew that we were destroying cities one by one. By the end of it, it was hoped, it was hoped that they would take it seriously. They were evacuating their, their children That was, one, that was one thing that they did start doing, uh, and that had happened over uh, – there. a lot of that had already happened in Hiroshima, for example. Uh, Japanese historian Sadao Asada, he was, uh, he was one of those you know, children who was, uh, who was in, evacuated to a location along the inland sea where uh, they were able to continue schooling. But, um, so – But how seriously it was taken, I don't know. Mm. One thing that was taken seriously and did have quite an effect is that after the uh, Japanese, after the imperial government started the first tentative feelers uh, after Nagasaki, uh, to uh, because because that Nagasaki was the was the key blast. That was the one that showed right. the leadership and the emperor that it, this wasn't a uh, thing where we were trying to s- psych them out. You know, this wasn't, uh, that this was something that was real, something that we could continue doing. Nagasaki. Yeah, they didn't, uh, they didn't the take Soviet, the first one. Plus the Soviet, yeah, plus the Soviets entering the war. Uh, we, uh, the, the fact that they were opening channels to negotiate We thought that would be a very good thing to make sure the Japanese population knew about that. And we had been preparing leaflets for if and when they did it, mm. and they did do it. And we did drop 20 million leaflets uh, in, sure. in, uh, in, in, uh, in the urban centers on that. Now, that's separate from the leafleting to get people out of the cities. But, it, but it's kind of part of the uh, same thing. And people saw that, and that did take... A, uh, we did hear about that during the occupation period mm. a lot. That when they heard that their their government was doing secretly starting negotiations, and by the way, there were people within the Japanese military 
uh, who were dead set to try and stop all this. In fact, uh, after two atomic bombs and the Soviets entering the war, they still couldn't agree on even starting negotiations. It took the emperor coming in there and basically saying, telling them, and this was days after Nagasaki yeah. and the Soviets came in. It basically took the emperor saying, no, you've got to do this. And the response to that was a coup, uh, which they were able to put down. But, uh, but the whole thing was a much dicier, much more closely run thing than a lot of people can appreciate. All right. So Dennis, so, and just on a human level, I, I wonder, I wonder if, if Harry Truman slept the night before D-Day. Uh, I mean, think about this for a second, right? You mean, you, you mean uh, the, the atomic bombings? Yes. So he knows. Oh, so, so oh he, yeah. He's, yeah. He, he never, he never expressed, he never expressed any regret because from the standpoint of he and the entire leadership, it saved lives. I mean, there was, there was definitely, you know, people could, as he put it, whine to him about it, but like, they're not thinking through what the situation was and what was mm. being looked at, which was that we were not at the end of a war. We were in the middle of the war. We had gotten, the Nazis had been defeated. Now it is Imperial Japan. Yeah. I mean, they're looking at the war, and in fact, it's part of the title on Hell to Pay. I mean, we were looking at the war going into 1947, so, at so, least. So he, so he was looking at this as hopefully a way to shock Japan into surrender and to... That was the word being used. That was right. the word being used. Right, and so that day came. Now, did, did the crew on board the um, Enola game know what they were getting into? They had a very good idea and eventually knew knew all about it. Now, there now the commander for the bomb group uh, for the bomb group he knew about it. His senior people knew. Uh, different people had uh, suspicions, but it's uh, yeah they they knew what was they knew about the bomb, but it's still when you actually right, saw yes. it. Yeah. It was it was it was stunning, you know, to see that. And uh, and now this is, I mean, history that everybody has read and watched and whatnot. But they had to strip that airplane down to its bare essentials oh, yeah. to to keep it very light. Uh, they had to have sunglasses for the explosion and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of uh, lots of myths and legends about the captain and whether or not he committed suicide because he couldn't handle the stress and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you'll you'll tell oh, me about that. Uh, yeah, the pe the people people in the unit, and I'd have to read. I could read up on that more. Mm. Uh, one of the uh, it was it was said that. Uh, and I, and I don't know the specifics. It's one of those things I have to educate myself on. But, I mean, I actually know some of the surviving B-29 people. And uh, and I knew uh, the uh, – I knew a lot I knew a lot of key people involved uh, in this. Mm. And when that would come up, you would get these kind of like, you know, sneers where this was – that had, had nothing to do with it. Uh, but it was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the uh, pilot 
of one of the observation aircraft and the way uh, and the way it was put to me by the uh, the navigator on uh, the Enola Gay was if if it's the same person I'm thinking of, he said he wouldn't have even been with he was on, no it was it was a weather aircraft and he wouldn't have even seen it. You know it was I but see you're you're asking a question that I would have to educate myself yeah. on. But I can tell you that the pot that the pilots and crewmen involved just thought that was beans. And it also happened decades after the war as well, where uh, uh, where that happened. So uh, where the uh, apparently where he committed suicide. So without educating myself, I'd have to say, you know, going by with with what participants in the uh, in the bomb group and other bomb groups, uh, you know, know. Dennis, somebody watching um, said that uh, it was nonsense. Japan was ready to surrender. I've I've actually read this online a few times. Um, from everything. oh, you'll see it all over. Yeah, that's that's people. That is that is. Th- there are people who are happy to perpetuate that, even though they know better, because it serves a political uh, agenda. But no, I mean you can all, all of the all this stuff was uh, declassified years years later. We were read we were reading the communications. Uh, as they were uh, going, uh, as they were going through, the Soviets were uh, reading the uh, internal communications as well. And what this was was setting up for uh, trying to were vague proposals to set up uh, to be to do the beginnings of an armistice process. Mm. You know, it has nothing to do with surrender. It has nothing to do with surrender. That's so- that's an. But but people conflate those terms and conflate those actions with what later happened, where it was a surrender. But of course, we did uh, very purposefully leave the uh, emperor in control. Yeah. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the bomb hit Hiroshima, um, and uh, Japan's government government didn't uh, take it seriously. They thought, oh, uh, the U.S. won't do that again. And then Nagasaki happened, and then they realized, okay, hang on, this can happen again. They've got, yeah, they, it wasn't just a flash for our benefit. They've actually got this thing, and they're producing it at enough quantity where they can be dropping it every few days, which, in fact, was the idea. So there, were, there was sort of a bluff and a bluff going on here um, strategically because the U.S. only had a certain number of these bombs because obviously it was very expensive. Japan didn't know how many uh and as you said earlier the the plan was to drop four but they only dropped two right true yes basically to give the japanese uh a chance to do more, do some internal negotiation among themselves mm. uh truman you know called a halt on the components for the third one being set being sent out see because they had to be constructed at the uh, at the uh, launch site itself you didn't send out a bomb you sent components that would then be uh, assembled mm. and uh, he held up the components and at one point right before the uh, radio broadcast by the emperor uh, it got to the point where you know, look, it's, this is this is taking forever. 
whether it is indecision or they've just decided not to do it or, uh, you know, we, you know, we've got we we have to keep to our timetables as far as the debate, the invasion itself. And so uh, after the so we held up the components on the third one uh, to be sent out there. And uh, eventually it got to the point where uh, Truman and I'd have to look up the date. Mm. Uh, but he, he just he just said uh, the effect of give them give them all you got. And the uh, strategic B-29 raids uh, were uh, the, were turned back on, so to speak, had uh, close to 1000 planes were in the air ready to bomb. I mean, they were literally in the air. There was a thousand. Uh, it, it was going to be short of a thousand, but you call it a thousand plane you know, cool. raid was literally up and on the way and was called back. The aircraft carriers, which had been uh, refueling at sea, the refueling was done and they were like sent back to, you know, their uh, positions uh, where uh, a whole series of uh, raids could be conducted all the way up the entire chain of Japanese islands and, uh, never did call off the softening up raids that were taking uh, place out of Okinawa because that was for the invasion. But all the strategic stuff was, was called off to give them time. And for what it's worth during that time, uh, they were had time to contemplate two bombs and the Soviets mm. entering the war. And, uh, and it took Hiroshima, uh, uh, Hirohito literally laying down the law, so to speak. But, but uh, yeah, uh, there could well have been, by the time they surrendered, the fourth bomb could well have been dropped by that time if Truman had not called a halt after the two. And the Japanese, uh, through fits and starts and a lot of internal fighting, did take advantage of that time. Um, Dennis, did... I'm trying to think how to ask my question. Um, was I've got to be careful here because it sounds it's it's bizarre because we're talking in such big numbers. But oh, I know. I'm it, and again, I'll say it the fourth time during this. How do you wrap <laughs> your heads around you know numbers with these long strings yeah. of zero? And you're talking yeah. about human I mean, lives. Let's never forget that. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> but okay. But was Harry was Harry Truman somewhat merciful when he when he stopped after Nagasaki? <laughs> I mean, well, well, te- yeah, well, you know, I've never looked at it that way. But but <laughs> technically speaking, you know, that was there was also discussion. There was discussion uh, between uh, the guy who ran the targeting committee and. Uh, and um, one of uh, General Marshall's uh, deputies, because uh, he was getting ready to send, he was in the beginning stages of formulating a proposal that after these first two, that instead of running through the target set, that we just now start using all the bombs being saved for mm. actual the actual invasion operation. And he was in the process of starting uh, the, the beginnings of, of getting that proposal ready when the surrender came. 
And that's when that, uh, that quote about, well, you know, we've, they haven't surrendered now, you know, we could just keep going. But like, if they haven't surrendered after we've destroyed two of their cities, you know, you know, the, the invasion's already going to be terrible enough. Maybe we, you know, need to call off mm. continued strategic operation use of the bomb, strategic use of the bomb, and now just have the uh, this next bit of production that would go into the strategic use go to the tactical use in the invasion. So Marshall was Marshall mm. was going to be angling to let it stop at those two cities, and but Truman came to that decision at least temporarily separate from Marshall, you know, uh, but so Marshall had not briefed that yet. And that was, that would go to Stimson before it went to Truman, you know, uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, interestingly enough, if, uh, if Truman hadn't given a bit of a breather, by the time the, the emperor's announcement came out, yeah, the third bomb would have definitely been dropped. You might've had the fourth, because that whole idea was to have these just be so overwhelming mm. to over so overwhelm the perceptions of the of the uh, the militarists that they would not get what they want. See, the militarists wanted an invasion of Japan because that was where they could really inflict U.S. casualties in a serious way. The militarists wanted an invasion that they could defeat. And a series, uh, a series of to- atomic bombs. Uh, I'm trying mm. to. I'd have to look up his name. Was it Sato? I'd have to look. One one of the uh, people in the Imperial War Cabinet even said, you know, well, at this point, all they've got to do is just keep dropping atomic bombs on us. So it had the effect. You know that 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 second bomb in particular really did have a useful effect. But but again, even even with two bombs and the Soviets going in, they still couldn't get agreement. That was that was what was fascinating. Uh, there's there's a fellow by the name of Richard uh, Frank who re- writes very eloquently about this. Uh, uh, let's see, Barrett has a new book that uh, talks about uh, this. Uh, let's see, uh, Heinrich and uh, there's a number of books that that cover this. But then again, I don't know how much. Uh, I would imagine that this is not. It's it's well known within educational. And uh, in certain circles in the United States, but I don't know how well, uh, how much that's filtered out beyond uh, American academics, mm. so to speak. Dennis, was was this all part of Operation Downfall? Pardon? Was this all part of Operation Downfall? Well, the the tactical use certainly would have been. This mm. uh, the Manhattan Project is separate and distinct from downfall. Uh, the Manhattan Project may s- make it so that you do not have to do downfall, may make it so that you could shut off mileposts, which is what, and, and hula, which is what ended up happening. Uh, or if the Japanese don't surrender, everything goes on and, mm. uh, and the Manhattan Project basically becomes an adjunct to right. downfall. 
Sorry, my uh, my cat is, is sneezing under my feet here. Well, that, that's okay. <laughs> sneezing cat. Hey, it, it happens. Hey, maybe it's COVID. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's but, come in. Do you follow what I'm saying there? It's it's a separate project. Yeah. Uh, but if it, if if it, if the project works into a situation where they have to be tactically used, then uh, the Manhattan Project uh, becomes a, a sidebar to uh, downfall. And there was other things, like there's Iron Horse. Mm. There's all kinds of secret stuff going on. Iron Horse had a, uh, had a security, uh, had a manufacturing priority second only to uh, the Manhattan Project. And Iron Horse was for the uh, produ- was for the construction of uh, an artificial harbor in Tokyo Bay that would have uh, made uh, well not Tokyo Bay it's for the other it's for the uh, other invasion beach which is out to the east uh, but it was for Iron Horse was going to make an artificial harbor that would have dwarfed the two mulberries mm. uh, off of uh, off of the Normandy beaches. Uh, would have been approximately four times the size, and it had a priority second only the man to the Manhattan Project. And how many people have ever even heard of Iron Horse? No. So you've got things. You've got Iron Horse. You've got Hula. You've got U.S. Liberty ships being reflagged and going through mm. uh, Japanese straits. There was just all kinds of stuff going on. People have you know very little clue about they focus in on the political stuff because frankly it's the easiest stuff to kind of get your head around you know like uh it's very know, complex talking to, oh yeah 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 it's a yeah, rabbit we hole. were gonna have we were gonna basically have five million men in the pacific sheesh um dennis i've kept you for quite a bit longer so i'll 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 try and i'll try and bring us in quickly now um to a, a conclusion but I mean, I'm looking at the comments, and uh, there, there, there is a, there is definitely a, a thread of sort of anti-American sentiment, um, saying that this was a barbaric act. Uh, they, they didn't need to do this. But as, as you've explained, okay, well, hey, we can, we can very easily be not barbaric. There mm. was, there was, dis- there was discussion, there was discussion you know, uh, along a variety of lines at different times. But absolutely. We could we could certainly not do the barbaric act of dropping two atomic bombs. Of course, that would be followed by the uh, the barbaric acts of invading and basically uh, having what the Japanese estimated would be about 20 million casualties. we would also have a Japan uh, divided ultimately between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, like Germany was. Mm. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's basically, uh, or to to paraphrase uh, Stimson, it was the least of a bad set of and, options. And it was, it actually was then the best decision military-wise. Uh, it, 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 forget it, it for getting it over with quickly because see yeah. one of the things too is if it if it uh, uh if it stretches out and the japanese militarists who they again isis-like figures who were in control of an industrial nation uh, uh, uh you know they made no pretense about it everyone today focuses on you know giving guarantees to the emperor but see there was more to it than that they wanted to do their own war crimes trials mm. they wanted to have no occupation 
they wanted to be able to remilitarize Japan. Uh, you know, so basically you're looking at, a tw- you're looking at, uh, you know, you go back to Versailles and Versailles weighed heavily in people's minds yes. in the, in the U S leadership at the time you, you, you base, they, they referred to Versailles a lot internally. And essentially if the Japanese are militarists are not utterly, totally, and completely defeated, you have another war 20 years out, and that war probably will be fought with nuclear weapons. And now, 20 years out is Vietnam, right? which everybody remembers. Now, mm. imagine Vietnam is basically being a firecracker sideshow to World War III. You know, a remilitarized, undefeated Japan you know, so much the was, way the Nazis. Yeah, this, I mean, this was definitely so the thing the best, is, yeah. it's a very glib, easy thing. It was a terrible thing to do. Well, of course, everybody knew it was a terrible thing to do. Yeah, but the thing is, it was it was the least worst from the standpoint of the people who were having to make the decisions at that time. And based on the the options, it was the morally it was the more morally correct military decision yeah there's uh, father, father miss campbell uh from the uh, history department at notre dame the gentleman you wanted to speak to uh, mm. uh originally uh but he's having to deal with a lot of stuff having to do with covid and mm. class things you know he can go into an entire discussion with you on on that subject because that's an area that uh, the the moral uh the moral angle of that and the moral aspects, he can go into that in great detail. And it sounds like I've maybe helped set that up yes, uh, for def- a later yeah. discussion you may have with him. Um, I'm just giving you the military end. No, and I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, listening to you talk now for the last 90 minutes, um, it's very difficult to see uh, uh, any other option here. Uh, I mean, this... Okay, well, and, and, yeah, and, that's... And, and people must remember this was a war. Yeah, and it's a thing of like, well, you've got, uh, uh, and again, dovetailing off the uh, post-war UN figures, 400,000 people a month. And uh, I, I had I had a fascinating, and, I, and now I, and I took notes, I, and, and there's a lady at, uh, at uh, C-SPAN, which is a uh, mm. U.S. Uh, television company, who's got my notes on this. I wish I had them with me now and I could have prepared, but I ended up being in a taxi in one of my runs to Washington, D.C., uh, and it was uh, and there was some, something on the radio about a demonstration, and the, the taxi driver, who it turns out is Filipino, he just... He uh, he'd been asking me like what I was doing, and I said I said you know well I'm going to be speaking at such and such, yeah, and uh, and this thing comes on the radio, and he says all of my family but two people died in Manila, Japanese killed them, you know, and and then and he and he had some other I'm I'm not doing it justice I didn't I didn't know to go back because this was years ago, uh, but I've got my I've got my notes on this if you like I'll dig them out and send them to you. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, he had, he had no love for the Japanese and you find that you find that all over. And he, he did not like that people focus in on Hiroshima specifically without looking at the totality of the war, very intelligent guy, 
people may not people may not think of taxi drivers as uh, as sharp. They may just kind of denigrate them because of their job. But I'll tell you, this guy was sharp. And he had lost. Uh, he was. He had been a little, a uh, little kid, and luckily mm. was. I. I can't pronounce it. He said the name of the town he was in. He was able to be in because they got him outside of the city. But like uh, his, basically his family was all killed by the Japanese in Manila. And uh, yeah, and that's sorry, and that's something that I mean that's a different discussion altogether. But something that people. Uh, I think it's probably a, 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 a way of signaling one's virtue to to side with in what looks like the underdog. It was Japan being bombed by this ridiculous, you know, ridiculously powerful explosion. But what people forget is how brutal the Japanese uh, regime was. It killed hundreds of thousands of people, often women and children, making them march for hundreds of kilometers and all kinds of terrible, terrible well, things. Well, actually... Actually, more than hundreds of thousands. Actually, more than hundreds of thousands. The the Chinese totals, and again, it's depending on uh, how they crunch the numbers. But you're looking to twenty to thirty million, ju- sure. just with them. You have you have you have one million just in the famine in the northern part of Vietnam mm. in uh, the last months uh, of the war. I mean, it's I, again just numbers that are just you know reach just unreal proportions. But, you know, Hiroshima, it's a singular event. So it's an easy thing to point to, removed from the context of an a in- incredibly brutal war. And again, uh, it negates, the, uh, it negates the, uh, the fact that an invasion was coming up. Mm. As Truman put it, he wanted to avoid an Okinawa from one end of japan to the other well what was in okinawa well there's that's uh that's uh counting american and uh and okinawan and japanese deaths what at the very minimum you're talking uh in the uh upper hundred uh thousand range hundred and eighty thousand sure and he's talking about it avoiding it from one end of japan to another it's a big nation and a lot of vulnerable people and and Wars roll right over, and something that 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 will 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 sort of come to an ending with this. But what were the numbers um, of deaths because of the atomic bombs, and then what would the estimated numbers have been without the atomic bombs? I, I know it's guesstimates, oh, and I, and I did read something well, I today. Think I'd have to. I'd have to consult directly my figures but i think that uh immediate radiation sickness as well as blast effects killed the japanese numbers are in the strategic bomb survey uh and they were the numbers compiled by the japanese who were very thorough um i think it was it was in the mid 70s but then there and that was that was Blast effects and immediate radiation effects. Mm. And then there are people who have uh, who uh, work radiation figures later on. But if you do it, if you do it from an actuarial standpoint, you find out that a lot of the methodologies for doing that are kind of skewed to arrive at certain results so to speak so so that so some of the numbers 
that that came out beyond the original Japanese uh, numbers, and they had no reason to lower them, if you know mm. what I mean, yeah. uh, are viewed with skepticism. There's even some notional numbers that, that say, well, if you look at the population here and you subtract the number of known deaths, then there's an X number tens of thousands of people who are missing who must have been killed to which Sadawa Sada says, wait a minute, those were evacu uh, these were uh, people who were evacuated because there was a several month period where all kinds of people were removed from the city. So if you do this notional thing of just working from numbers, well, where are these people? Well, they were, uh, they were told by the Japanese government to leave and they did. And he was one of them. <laughs> and so, and so, so, so the best numbers are the ones created by the Japanese themselves, you know, after the fact. And again, they had no reason to like lessen numbers. Sure. And then, and then my, the other part of the question was, and this obviously is just sort of projections, but had the bombs not been dropped, what sort of numbers then might have been well, the case? Well, the, the numbers that Truman was getting, There were there were technical numbers built on uh, the Okinawa fighting. Originally, they were mm. built on the Philippine fighting. And there's a whole methodologies for doing this. In fact, I won an, an award on a uh, a book on casualty projection analysis for uh, the invasion of Japan. Interestingly enough. Um, Casualty projections for the invasions of Japan, 1945 and 46. Uh, and um, policy objectives. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, even it's, it's, it was an article I wrote like about 40 some, about, uh, no, tw about 30 some years ago. But in any event, uh, the, the numbers that were originally based on Philippine fighting, then um, the, they had to be based on the vastly more bloody uh, Okinawa and Iwo Jima fighting and basing it uh, on that, which is the same thing that the Japanese, the Japanese yeah. were basing their numbers on Okinawa as well. We ended up in the point where both sides, both sides of the Pacific were basing their numbers on the Okinawa fighting. We came up with that uh, there might be uh, up to 10 million Japanese deaths. The Japanese came up with 20 million. Okay, so it's, a, know, lot, so, it's a lot higher. So, so, so we're coming up with 10 million. The Japanese, uh, the number in imperial circles was 20 million. Uh, in terms of U.S. casualties, we were looking at when we had one division in operation in Kyushu, uh, that the four months to the uh, first four months, it would be approximately a hundred thousand men per month, or so you're get you're getting close to about a half million. Only thing is, though, is that's only the first of two operations, and there's also a third one in the works. The second operation isn't going to have one field army; it's going to have two, and there's eventually going to be a third one involved. So in the first one, we're looking at all causes, casualties, mm. uh, about 100,000 men per month. Yo. And which is also where some numbers. of the uh, which is which is also where some of the worry 
big worry was coming in mm. because there was, a, there was the whole question of how do we handle them properly. I have two chapters on that because there was a lot of planning going on. Uh, one of them focuses on <clears throat> the, the, the massive blood supply infrastructure that was being built from the United States through the Pacific just to handle blood supply needs. And that was just for the first of the two invasion operations. So, uh, so uh, we're looking at 10 million sure. Japanese killed on our side. The imperial circles, they're talking about 20 million. And I, again, it's incredible the, numbers. the numbers are too big. No, you cannot imagine them. No, you can't imagine them. It's like a computer game. Yeah. Um, but see to, a, see, to many Asians, though, this is not that out of the question. You're looking at, you have to look at, be, to understand these numbers, you have to look at the Soviet Union. Mm. You have to look at China. You have to look at the British Empire as a whole. You have to look at Germany. Germany had uh, a million and a half deaths after the, in the, after the war. In, the, in like something like about the first four months after the war. I mean, I mean, the numbers are huge, but yeah. you're talking about a war in which all the numbers are huge. Mm. This is only one particular piece of it. And again, you can't separate out Japan from what's going on from Indonesia mm. all the way through mm. northern China. It's it's all I mean, uh, one big sort of the, connected web. It was a let's put it this way: it was a god awful mess, and it was not envisioned to end anytime soon. Mm. Not Dennis, envisioned to end anytime soon. Dennis, we've gone way over time, so I, and it's I, I have no idea how and, one and at that length, no, nobody's going to watch it. <laughs> no, but I also have I also have no idea how one ends a conversation like this. But I do have one question that I've asked a few of my guests. So let me go with that and and completely segue. Um, you actually might have a very good answer to this. So I watched a documentary quite some time ago where some divers went down to have a look at the Bismarck. I have a question for you. Did the Germans scuttle their own ship? Or was Winston Churchill correct in claiming victory? Oh, uh, probably both could be true from a military standpoint. Because <laughs> the thing is, is that if the Bismarck... No, and, and, I, and that's absolutely the way it, it can work. Like, the Bismarck is a, a blasted hulk. It cannot serve German purposes mm. uh, to... Uh, to uh, it, would, it would be... It's a blasted hulk. The Bismarck has been removed from the chessboard. But from the German standpoint, it would be absolutely horrifying to have the Bismarck towed in to a British port where they can now display it as a war trophy. So the thing is, uh, the scuttling of a defeated warship is, is very common, very, very common. Because you don't want the enemy to have it. Right. Uh, in some ways, if you look at the mindset of some of the people within imperial circles who refused to surrender mm. after uh, both two atomic bombs and the Soviets coming in, they kind of were like the, you might say, like the, the uh, ship's captain who doesn't want it being <laughs> captured. They don't. 
they would rather see Japan destroyed, seriously, because the Japanese people had not lived up to the precepts mm. of Bushido. They had not successfully repulsed it, so we don't deserve to exist as a nation. Believe it or not, boy, that is the way some of that thinking runs there. And, I mean, it's and it ain't good if you're a family who just wants to survive the war. This has been a really interesting conversation, Dennis. I absolutely appreciate your time. Thank you need you. to talk with Miss Campbell. I I hopefully will. I hopefully will. Um, but I've thoroughly enjoyed this particular chat with you. It's been very interesting, um, and uh, the comments have been have been quite interesting too. Uh, you are welcome to have a look at them uh, after the fact. Oh, absolutely! Love the, to see them. The video will be will obviously be on YouTube. Um, I have linked to your book below the video, so people are welcome to go and buy it. I would recommend it. Um, as I said, I plan to read it. I have read the everything around it, but because I spoke to you so so recently, <laughs> I wasn't able to. I'm a slow reader, and I wasn't able to get through the book. <laughs> um, I'm a terribly slow reader too. <laughs> so so and it's on my list though, and I will get to it. I'm actually busy. I'll, I'll tell you quickly. I'm actually busy with a book called Grey Wolf. Um, it's about whether or not Hitler actually escaped uh, Germany to, and went to Argentina. Um, oh yeah, there's going to be all kinds of people who'll be having fun with that one forever. <laughs> it's a great. It's actually a great read. <laughs> but um, as I said, thank you so much for your time, Dennis. I hope you have a wonderful day further. Um, and um, thank well, you, you too. Yeah, well, I'm I'm done with my day. <laughs> it's bedtime almost. But thank you to everybody who joined. Um, and uh, I hopefully will chat to you in the future, Dennis. Well, have a good evening. Thanks, everybody. My name is Germ. This was Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. <laughs>